Hello, my name is Michael Albert, and I'm the host of the podcast titled Revolution Z. One of the things needed to do a podcast like Revolution Z is funding. To help with that, would you please become a patron at the website www.patreon.com slash revolutionz. The project needs your support, and it will take only a few minutes. Another thing needed to make a podcast like Revolution Z worthwhile is audience. To help with that, can you let others know about Revolution Z? And even urge them to give it a listen. The project needs that kind of support also. And that too will take only a few minutes. But now let's get to episode 23, which is titled Participatory Polity 1. In a series of episodes relating to the recent upsurge of support for socialism, if we want to address vision and strategy, is it enough to focus on a new economy beyond markets and without classes, as we have done so far? No, it is not. In the past, some have thought that attaining desirable economics was sufficient for attaining desirable society. They were wrong. First, doing so would be horribly insufficient. Attaining desirable economics would certainly be wonderful, but ongoing authoritarian, political, kinship, and cultural relations would remain grotesque. Second, doing so would be unstable. Persistently oppressive political kinship and cultural relations would exert pressures subverting desirable economic gains and eventually even reversing them. And that isn't the end of the story. You might accept that economics isn't everything, and that even major economic change would be unstable without other change, and still say, okay, but those observations are a problem for a primary focus on economy only if the advocates of a new economy ignore the extra economic. You might continue, if we address economics, the foundation, and then we immediately recommit and do the rest based on that initial achievement, all will be well. At first hearing, that can sound pretty convincing. But the thing is, and this is the third point, an economy first and then the rest approach is not viable because movements and projects for change won't attain desirable economics if they are not simultaneously achieving desirable polity, kinship, and culture. Without centrally also addressing the extra economic realms, movements for a new economy will lack sufficient support to attain even just fundamental economic change. They will lack sufficient internal mutuality and solidarity to struggle successfully for even just fundamental economic change. They will fail to even sustain good values and aims in their focused area of economics if they ignore violations of those same values and aims in polity, kinship, and culture. It turns out, in other words, that economics is not a foundation under the rest of society. Instead, there is no single foundation under all of society, and a more accurate formulation is that we have four load-bearing pillars, economy, polity, kinship, and culture. The four hold up not only the rest of society, but also each other. That is, each of the four affects and is affected by the other three. In current popular parlance, the four pillars intersect one another. Each spreads influence more or less like a force field that helps define the others. The four pillars reinforce and complement each other to compose one whole. The economic pillar in our society, capitalist, establishes class division, which in turn radiates its influence outward to impact kinship, community, cultural, and political relations. The latter become not only consistent with class hierarchies, that is, they do not subvert them, but change to reflect class hierarchies internally to their own kin, cultural, and political sectors. In other words, impacted by the force field of the economic pillar, 
Families not only don't, in general, generate new generations of citizens who rebel against class hierarchy, they generate young men and women who are accommodated to their economic lot in life. Even more, families' internal modes of birth, nurture, and socialization come to so intimately reflect economic influence that they not only don't conflict with, but also reproduce class relations. The family itself, and kin institutions more broadly, pressured by emanations from the economic pillar, themselves become a second source of class division. This is the dynamic those who say that economics undergirds everything, that economics is basic where other parts of society float above that economic foundation, see. This is what they see. And they see that like for economy impacting kinship, it also impacts culture and polity, causing each to bend to not violate class division and rule, and then to bend even further to themselves in force and become additional sources of class division and rule. What the advocates of economy above the rest miss, however, is that this influential dynamic runs from every pillar to each of the others. It runs not only from economy to kinship, culture, and polity, but also from kinship, culture, and polity, spreading their own influence back to economy and to each other. So without belaboring every pairing, kinship produces gender and sexual hierarchies and age hierarchies too. And it emanates a kind of force field, like the economy does for class relations, to the rest of society. The economy, in turn, accommodates to kinship hierarchies in the way it provides income and influence at work to men and women, so as not to disrupt what kinship establishes. Even more, work itself starts to alter. Jobs become, to a degree, male and female defined. Economic roles get imprinted with kin definitions until the economy not only doesn't, in its implications, violate kinship relations, but it becomes a new source of sexism's continued reproduction and likewise for the effect of polity and culture impacting the rest. The economy imposes on kinship until family relations and patterns don't violate and even come to enforce and reproduce class division and rule. But at the same time, kinship imposes on the economy until workplace roles and patterns don't violate and even come to enforce and reproduce gender divisions and sexist hierarchy. I don't want to go overboard. None of this is seamless, automatic, inviolable. It has an ebb and flow, like all social relations. It is, however, very broadly speaking, the meshed basis upon which the social systems persistently reproduce themselves. Nonetheless, of course, people can resist and win change, which is the whole point of our podcast, Revolution Z. People naturally aspire to freedom, equity, and dignity. And in doing so, they come into conflict with existing relations. Their socialization is not perfect or unchangeable. Their intrinsic needs and capacities can cause rebellion. Additionally, sometimes the intersections go wrong in the normal operations of the usually mutually reproducing spheres of social life. For example, World War II brought women and blacks into jobs they wouldn't have otherwise held, and their emergent confidence and new desires helped propel the emergence of civil rights and feminism. Similarly, birth control undermined kin relations, changing family patterns pressured cultural relations, and so on. In this formulation, even so briefly offered as here, which I and nowadays most activists in our own ways adhere to, to fundamentally change any one pillar of society, we need to work to fundamentally change them all. In other words, our society has one four-dimensional foundation. Forty-five years ago, when some of us first started urging this perspective, 
plus priority attention as well to international relations and ecology, the insights were highly controversial and vehemently resisted. Now, however, the broad insights are generalized and ratified among most activists, albeit with various arrangements and differences from advocate to advocate. Regarding economics, therefore, as we have been arguing in past episodes, we need economic vision to sustain hope, to generate positive mutuality, and to inform what we now seek so it leads toward the classlessness we desire for later. But at the same time, we also need political kinship and cultural vision to sustain hope, to generate positive mutuality, and to inform what we now seek so that it leads toward what we desire regarding political relations, relations among genders and bearing on sexuality, and relations among races, nationalities, religions, and other cultural communities. So far in history, however, it turns out that vision for polity, kinship, and community is not as developed as economic vision. Nonetheless, it would be grossly remiss, both morally and strategically, to address economy and set the rest aside without comment. For vision, our survey of a worthy economic vision is necessary, but it is not enough. We need more. So here, in this and next episode, we move on to address polity, and later more focuses will follow. Every day teaches anew that contemporary political structures are decrepit. And this would still be the case even if huge concentrations of corporate wealth and power didn't overwhelmingly dominate political outcomes, which they certainly do. It would still be the case even if corporate media didn't hugely distort political preferences, which it certainly does. It would still be the case even if the two parties hadn't long been two wings of a single corporate party, which they are. It would still be the case even if we didn't have idiotic and at best anachronistic structures like the Electoral College, which we do. It would still be the case even if elections weren't easily distorted and even hijacked by voter suppression and outright fraud, which they are. And it would still be the case even if elections weren't winner-take-all affairs, in which those elected have no accountability, which they are. Clearly, even without all those harsh failings, modern electoral democracy would diverge greatly from a system that maximally facilitated participation, that creatively elicited informed opinion, and that justly resolved serious disputes. So what do we want instead of current political systems? When activists take to the streets in the Mideast, Africa, Asia, Europe, and America, protesting governments that range from limited democracies to vile dictatorships, what, beyond indignation, fuels their tenacity? What do they want? What do we want? Polity centrally includes how we determine shared rules or laws called legislative functions. It centrally includes how we implement shared programs and pursuits, like a national medical program or a space program, called executive functions. And it centrally includes how we resolve contested claims, including violations of rules and laws, called judicial functions. A political vision therefore needs to include a set of institutions able to actualize our values for the political sphere of life, which is to say, for legislative, executive, and judicial functions. Positive political vision has not yet been as fully spelled out, explored, and challenged as positive economic vision. However, the U.S.-based activist and political scientist Stephen Shalom, among others, has provided a preliminary presentation of what he has called participatory politics, or power polity, a name perfectly suited for part of a participatory society, or if you prefer, for part of participatory socialism. But first, before he joins us next episode, why do we need political vision at all? 
One thug with a club can disrupt even the most humane gathering, and thugs with clubs aroused by liquor, jealousy, arrogance, greed, pathology, or some other antisocial attribute won't disappear from a good society. Likewise, an intractable dispute can often escalate, even in the best environment, into a struggle that transcends the scope of its causes. This is so whether the escalating dispute occurs between the Hatfields and McCoys, northern and southern states, rural and urban areas, France and Germany, or Pakistan and India. What prevents social degradation due to thugs with clubs? What prevents escalating disputes becoming feuds or even wars? At the same time, it is also true that if we lack the continuity of agreed social norms, we will continually have to restart social projects from scratch. In that case, we won't benefit from preserved, previously agreed responsibilities and practices. We will have to repeatedly renegotiate procedures to the point of barely ever implementing anything. In a good polity, will we have known responsibilities that we cannot violate, or will everything we do be up for grabs with each new day? In the former case, we might attain civilized existence. In the latter case, we would only have chaos. To have social success, in other words, we need political institutions that not only accomplish political functions, but also provide continuity. Some might say roles that institutions define inevitably eliminate some options, and that is in fact true, but they can also fantastically facilitate other options. The trick is to choose institutions so that precluded options are all harshly harmful and facilitated options are all sincerely desirable. In that case, the limitations and the facilitations of political institutions can greatly benefit us. Put differently, it is true that even the most desirable, mutually agreed roles and responsibilities will, to some degree, limit our range of options. Laws restrict what we are permitted to do. So do roles, conventions, norms, and agreements. In fact, for any widely accepted social role, role-violating behavior largely disappears. In return for that loss, however, desirable mutually agreed roles make the range of all options available to us vastly larger and more attainable by facilitating their accomplishment. Having red and green lights at traffic intersections, as a simple example, constrains our driving options since we must stop at red and go at green, but it also keeps us alive to do all else we might choose. More generally, having diverse collectively established rules that we all abide can permit us each to operate far more effectively and diversely than if we had no such rules, even as having rules also narrows our choices in some contexts. Arriving at an intersection and knowing to stop or go because we know what others will do, even though it means we lose the option to go at red, is a major plus. Getting to intersections and having to debate who does what, supposing we haven't crashed on arrival, is a major minus. If our political institutions limit options agreeably, and if they facilitate options desirably, and of course if they are designed to change with changing times and improved understanding, then the coherence and ease of interactive activity that institutional norms can bring will more than outweigh any limitations they may impose. If I violate previously agreed roles and responsibilities, my doing so will likely disturb and perhaps completely disrupt other people's expectations, actions, and options. We don't want everyone to be free to drive through red lights. We don't want everyone to be free to kill or steal or whatever. Nor do we want to arrive at new rules every day. We want to establish rules that enlarge good options and restrict only bad ones. 
We want the kind and level of freedom for each person whose exercise facilitates further freedom and the means to enjoy it for all people. We do not want the kind and level of freedom for each person whose exercise curtails freedom and the means to enjoy it for all other people. We certainly want to escape needless restrictions, but we want to do so only consistent with others having the same freedoms we have and while preserving previously agreed role responsibilities. The anarchist desire for freedom from constraints that are imposed on the populace by a state operating separate from and above the populace is wise and warranted. However, when this desire for freedom sometimes morphs into a claim that any effort to accomplish political functions is doomed to be oppressive, it goes astray. Accomplishing legislation, collective implementation, and adjudication by way of lasting institutions is not itself a problem. The problem is doing it in ways divorced from and contrary to the will, needs, and possibilities of the populace. If we are to attain our values, anarchism is right that we must not have states existing above people. However, if we are to retain our values, we must nonetheless collectively accomplish needed political functions. Thus, in seeking political vision, we confront the same type of problem as we addressed when talking earlier about economics. We have to determine what institutions can fulfill the functions of polity while also furthering our overall social values. One failed answer resides in the label, dictatorship of the proletariat. Even when sought for worthy reasons, and many people have historically sought the dictatorship of the proletariat for worthy reasons, this aim translates virtually seamlessly into the dictatorship of the party, dictatorship of the Politburo, and in the worst case, even the dictatorship of the beneficent, or worse, the megalomaniacal dictator. That this trajectory could ever have been equated with a desirable form of political life will always be a horrible blemish on the political history of the left. It is, or it ought to be self-evident, that outlawing all but a single vanguard party ruled by democratic centralism subverts even democracy, much less self-management. To routinely outlaw external opposition and to suppress internal dissent by transferring critical members between branches, for example, similarly subverts democracy, much less self-management. Democratic centralism systematically impedes participatory impulses. It promotes popular passivity. It nurtures fear. It breeds authoritarianism, even against the far better aspirations of many of its advocates. All this should be evident, even to casual thinking, much less in light of the historical record. There is an old adage, power corrupts, absolute power corrupts absolutely. But why should this be so? I think the underlying dynamic which makes this adage applicable in so many domains is that having power, like having more income or more wealth or more privilege, needs a rationalization. Absent a rationalization that is based in positive values, what tends to enter people's minds to explain their having excessive power is that they deserve the excessive power. They are somehow more worthy of making decisions than others are, and so they deserve more power too. So suppose someone is highly knowledgeable about tornadoes, and there is one coming, very unexpectedly. There is no time for the person to patiently make suggestions and for others to discuss and deliberate the suggestions, thus consulting the expertise but deciding their options for themselves. To avoid calamity, instead, the knowledgeable person needs to be in command. The knowledgeable person needs to exert power. In that case, I think the knowledgeable person can exercise power without a personal distortion occurring. The rationale is just greater knowledge plus emergency precluding collective participation. 
And the same holds for those following that person's lead. They can do so without feeling somehow generally subordinate, like they should always take orders. Now take a workplace, say, or a community or a country. Suppose someone with no real legitimate claim on massively important knowledge, and even more important, with no need to not simply make known their advice for deliberation, simply takes command. What is the rationale for that? If it is not some temporary contextual need, it becomes instead, in the person's mind, the person's superiority. They just plain deserve to be in command. Power corrupts, and then more commanding leads to a stronger view of personal priority until absolute power corrupts absolutely. This may sound simplistic, sort of simple-minded psychology or something, but I think it has weight. At any rate, democratic centralism, a particular form of political authoritarianism, is not a worthy political system. I suspect virtually all Revolution Z listeners will agree on that, but if not, I would more than welcome receiving comments indicating contrary views. Western-style electoral democracy is another answer to the political vision question. But while many more folks advocate it, it too is a far cry from participatory democracy. In Western-style electoral democracy, highly unequal distributions of wealth stack the deck before the political card game even begins. Citizens choose from pre-selected candidates screened for compatibility by society's corporate elites. More, suppose we remove private ownership of productive assets to overcome many wealth-related problems within a Western-style democracy. Still, participatory democracy requires more than infrequently voting for a representative to carry out political activity that is largely separated from popular will and contrary to popular interests. Western-style electoral democracy, while better than democratic centralism, still falls far short of being a desirable way to conduct political life. A still third flawed answer to the political vision question comes from the incorrect claim that the lesson of oppressive government is that polity per se is oppressive. It is the assertion that anything goes should be the watchword. This view ignores our need for accepted roles since political functions can't be usefully and sustainably carried out without them. A related, correct claim is that a polity which exists above the populace, imposing on the populace, and not reflecting the informed will of the populace, is oppressive. So the question arises, what structures can allow and sustain a polity of and not above the populace? Electing representatives is, for certain situations, a plausible and perhaps even essential part of a true participatory democracy that promotes deliberation and exploration. But wouldn't frequent and regular referenda on important political propositions and policies at every level of political organization, plus a full airing of competing views at least positively augment voting for candidates? And can we go further and conceive additional mechanisms that would permit and propose engagement, deliberation, and participatory decision-making, preserve essential rights, serve justice, and give all citizens appropriate self-managing say, either directly or, when desirable, through recallable representatives? Next episode, my first guest on the podcast, Revolution Z, Stephen Shalom, will help us further on these matters. Meantime, please visit the Revolution Z Patreon webpage at www.patreon.com slash revolutionz. There you can find out more about our project, leave public comments that I will try to react to, and, should you so choose, provide a donation to help us along. Also, please consider using social media or email or word of mouth to promote Revolution Z's visibility. But, for now, this is Michael Albert, signing off until next time for Revolution Z.